0: All right. Let's get her done. <laughs> that worship was amazing. We got a rapper up there. Man, I wish I could rap like that. And got singing the blues over here, man. We've got the whole that was awesome, dude. I could I could listen to that stuff all day long. This is uh I was just in Joseph Garlington's church. Do you guys know Joseph by chance? It's a black church man. Those guys. <laughs> I was, I, I was fitting in. I was fitting in, man. I, I was like, it was awesome. We we just had such a great time, and and um, it's it's really an honor being here. We just came from our own conference. We just we just uh, did a three or four day conference at Bethel, and uh, we had some great testimonies. And one that was uh, that comes to my mind is the last night we were praying for healing for people. And specifically, we were praying for people that had metal, like, you know, like they had a metal plate put in their, in their back or their arm or, or, you know, in their, you know, someplace. And we were praying that God would, uh, would heal them and remove the metal. And this gal uh, comes running up. Bill said, if anyone's had that happen, you know, come up and, and share a testimony. And the first gal comes to the, the podium She had a metal plate, which a whole bunch of people were were just like over here praying for her. They were just freaking out. She had a metal plate about two inches wide and about seven or eight inches long in her elbow. She had broken her elbow. She had two screws into the bone and this plate. And and as they prayed for her, they could feel the plate disappear. Because you could feel the plate. The plate completely disappeared. The screws went away. This girl was freaking out. She's like... And, and, of course, the people who prayed for her, she's like, it dissolved, didn't it? It dissolved. So the plate was gone. Her, her elbow was completely healed. The metal disappeared. I don't know where the metal went. Another lady lost a metal plate, a metal rod that was in her back holding her straight. It disappeared completely, and she got healed. It was crazy. We had, I don't know how many healings, like 100 healings that night. But it's just amazing when God does something that's impossible, huh? He, he is like he specializes in the impossible. Have you noticed that? And uh, one of the things that I that I've uh, realized in my life is sometimes we're asking God for a you know supernatural ministry. Like we want to do miracles, and the next thing that happens is we need one. <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? You're like, God, use me to do miracles, and God goes, okay. And the next thing that happens is you have something in your life that's, you have an impossible situation in your life. Like, God, what's wrong? God's all, I thought you wanted to do miracles. And if you're anything like me, I'm always being in someone else's life. I don't want one in my own life. And so, well, well, can we just pray? We should pray for me, don't you think? I'm the most needy person in this room right now because I have the mic. So extend your hand to me and pray this. Oh, Oh, Jesus, thank you for Chris. Do not let him bore us right now. (laughs) Anoint his words. In Jesus' name. Okay, I'm going to pray for you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would change lives today. Lord, that they would hear things they've never heard, see things they've never seen, so that we can do things we've never done before. Lord, we've been called to be history makers. We've been called to be his story makers. Called to be world changers. Lord, we've been called to transform this city. You've not called us to reflect the culture of this city, but you called us to transform it. Yeah, how many of you know God didn't say arise and reflect? He said arise and shine. God's called us to be a voice, not an echo. Lord, we just pray for that right now that each one of us would have a passion in us. And we'd realize the treasure that you placed in each one of us. That you realize, Lord, that we would realize that you've called us to be, you've called us on to greatness. You've called us to be exceedingly, abundantly, more than we ask or think. You've called us to do the, the amazing, the impossible. Lord, let us be people who actually believe that we were born for significance. Whatever's going on in our life today, God, I pray that we'd put it into the context, that you are the God who can do the impossible and does the impossible. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I thought you guys were going to take my message this morning because um, one of the worship leaders was quoting, I think, Ephesians 6 about our struggle, and then somebody else got up and, and quoted Nehemiah, and I'm like, okay, those were my two key verses. <laughs> I leaned over, and I'm like, please don't let them take my whole message. <laughs> so, you know, um, in 2 Corinthians five seventeen, you know, when I was with you last time, which was about, I think, three years ago or so, I don't know if you remember the message I, I preached, and I I preach about five times a week average, so I... um. I don't very often remember what I preached in a certain place, to be totally honest. But I remember uh, talking about our identity in Christ when I was here last time. and uh, That you we were actually a royal priesthood. I don't know how many of you were here for that message, but that was just a darn good message I preached that week. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just trying to be funny. My sense of humor isn't working here very well. Um, but in, in uh, 2 Corinthians five seventeen, you know these verses well. It says, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have become new. And there's two Greek words for the word new. There's a word, the word new, like I've got a you know, I got a new car. It's you know, and then there's the word new that means like never before created. This word new means never before created. When he says that when if any man be in Christ, He's a new creation. It means that, you are, that He began a new species of creation when you were born again. We are the first people to ever grace this planet who live simultaneously in two dimensions. We live in heaven and we live on earth simultaneously. And it is true that we have dual citizenship. Like Paul argued that he was a Roman citizen twice in the book of Acts. So you are a citizen of earth, and you are a citizen of heaven. In fact, you are seated, I am seated, currently seated in heavenly places with Christ. That's not a metaphor. It's not some kind of theological principle that, you know, we're supposed to believe so we can kind of feel good about ourselves. We are literally seated in heavenly places in Christ. And I believe that when that goes from a theology and a philosophy to a reality, that it will actually change our destiny, Like, it's important for us to realize that you think that you're in Las Vegas, but the truth is is that you're actually seated in heavenly places. Not just in heavenly places, but with Christ. Far above all principalities and powers, and every name that's ever been named, both in this age and the one to come. We don't know what God is, co- is going to create in the in the ages to come. We know that God is still creating because it says that God worked six days. He rested on the seventh. The connotation is, is that He didn't rest forever. That He rested only one day and He continues to create. Now, this isn't my message, but I believe that God still procreates through the word of God in other words he said let there be light and there was light and I believe it's the reason why in First Corinthians 12 and 14 he says earnestly desire spiritual gifts but especially that you may prophesy because I believe that prophecy is both foretelling telling the future but probably the most important part is it's forthtelling. it's causing the future and when God said let there be light he wasn't telling the future he was causing the future and I believe that there's a lot of warfare against prophetic ministry because God's still procreating, but he's also using us as joint heirs to procreate with him. And as we make prophetic de- declarations, words become worlds. Sometimes, you know what we need? Sometimes we just need a good prophecy to, to, to break us out of our, our decrepit situation sometimes if we would stop complaining and stop prophesying and start prophesying, we might prophesy ourselves right out of the dry bones and into a mighty army. I think that... The definition of prophetic ministry has been so lost in this modern age that we actually think that prophecy is describing the dry bones in Ezekiel 37 instead of speaking to the dry bones and, 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 say, and speaking to, to what is not and calling it what is not as though it is. I think there's a lot of prophecy that thinks that, that uh, prophetic people that think that prophetic ministry is about describing how dry the bones are or what they used to be. And I'll tell you, we're not called to what was, we're called to what is. And what is to be. And so I I think it's important that we realize that we are people that live on earth, of course, but we also live in heavenly places. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you living from earth towards heaven or from heaven towards earth? Let me just say that again. Are you living, listen, you have dual citizenship, but the question is, are you living from earth towards heaven or are you living from heaven towards earth if we're living from earth towards heaven we're always living a reactionary life and our prayer life is a reflection of the fact that we are living from the wrong location in other words I'm always praying about what already happened Oh God, fix so-and-so. Oh God, help my son. Oh God, please bring my son back. Oh God, heal my wife. Oh God, heal our finances. And we're always praying about what's already happened. Because we're living from earth towards heaven. But in in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the apostle John. And you know the verse. He says, come up here. Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things? Do you understand that your heavenly seat gives you, that gives you eternal perspectives? Let me say it again. Come up here. Come up here. See, if we live down here, if we live down here, then we're always, we're always thinking about and living about and, and we're all about what's happening to me. But when I come up here, my heavenly seat gives me eternal perspectives. Come up here and I'll show you what must take place after these things. When I when I sit in my heavenly seat, my rightful heavenly seat, I have eternal perspectives. I see with new eyes. Are you following me? Even a rapture, so I don't want to be misunderstood. I believe in a rapture in the traditional sense that Jesus is coming back to get his people. I don't know when it's going to happen. You know, I don't know if I'm a post trib, pre trib, pan trib, preterist, pre preterist. You know, I don't know what my, you know, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I don't know what my eschatology is. I know it's changing. I feel like, you know, eschatology is a study of the last time, days. I don't know what my eschatology is. I feel like I'm a little bit like Abraham you know, and Sarah. You know the first word Abraham and Sarah got? It wasn't where they were going. God did not tell Abraham and Sarah where they were going at first. He told them where they couldn't stay. He said, leave the Chaldeans to a place I will show you. If you would have met Abraham the first day out of the Chaldeans and he's traveling and he said, Abraham, where are you going? He wouldn't have been able to tell you. So i got a prophetic word. Oh, awesome. you got a directional prophetic word. I did. What is it? I can't stay here. I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I can't stay. <laughs> Bill Cosby said this. He said, I don't know what the secret of success is, but I know what the secret of failure is. The secret of failure is blaming everyone else for what you've done. And so... I don't know, like my eschatology, I don't know what I, bl- what I believe about the end times, <laughs> but I know what I don't believe. Because <laughs> I believe we win. I believe <laughs> so I believe, in, I believe in a rapture. I don't want to be misunderstood. But I believe that we're called to many raptures. I'm not talking about takes the place of the rapture, so please don't misunderstand me. But I believe God is calling us continually, come up here. Come up here. Be enraptured by the presence of God so you have eternal perspectives. Stop living from earth to heaven. Start living from heaven to earth. What happens when we live from heaven to earth? We start, we start instead of praying about what's already happened, our prayers become prophetic declarations where history becomes history and our words become worlds. So I begin to prophesy about my tomorrow from heavenly perspectives. I sit in my heavenly seat and I say to God, God, what what is my life supposed to look like? What is my what is my friend's life supposed? What is my city's life supposed to look like? And I begin to call things that are not as though they are. Sin City becomes passion city. And it becomes a passionate place where people come to find their destiny. People looking for love in the right places. Are you with me? And I began to prophesy. This is this will be a city of creativity, a city of light. And it's <laughs> so we've been <laughs> we've been we've been called to be a people of greatness. That's just a law. Just stop and think about it. You were born to rock. You were born to be amazing. Aren't you being arrogant? No, I'm being honest. I didn't make me this way. In fact, most of us have done a really good job of undoing the work of the cross. There's a deception that needs to be broken in us. And that is this we have been taught oftentimes that the cross, that Jesus died on the cross to forgive our sins. That is true. That is not the whole story. In fact, well, we'll just say this. We'll just leave it there because then we could exaggerate to make a point and then it won't be true anymore. That is not, that is not the whole story. It's possible it's not even the main point. Because Jesus didn't just die on the cross to forgive your sins. He died on the cross to restore you to the glory that you fell short of. That I fell short of. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just forgive your sins. Because that would just put you back in the garden. Ready to do wrong again we got to get this. Like, like, he, he didn't just like, okay, I, I've erased your board. Okay, try it again. Uh, we, he figured out where that ends up. He didn't just forgive our sins. He changed our nature. This, you got to get this. It is not your nature to sin. I just was with a very important person on our team. And she made this statement. I sin every day. Doesn't everybody? I said to her, that's the stupidest statement I've ever heard in my life. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus didn't die on the cross so you could sin every day. And she pulls out 1 John. She reads this to me, and I'll read it to you. You can imagine we had a passionate discussion. (laughs) I'm a pretty low-key guy, so. She read this verse to me. Hang on, I'll get it for you. You've probably quoted it to yourself. Verse 6 of chapter one, First John. If we say we have fellowship with Him, God, yet we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, this is the verse she quotes. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And, he's, and she says, she reads that verse, and she said, it says right there, that we, if we say we haven't sinned, then we make God a liar. All, all, we've all sinned. I'm like, okay, wait a, second, wait a second. If that was the only verse in John, then I could see where you get to that. But the book of John was actually written to teach us the transition the transformation that happened to us from the time before we knew God to the time that we now know God, and so when first John, John says, If we say we haven 't sinned that we make him a liar he 's talking about our precondition before we knew Christ, and you go, Well, how do you know that because of the next verses look at the remember there was no chapter. Numbers or verse numbers when John wrote this. This is one letter as you would write to a friend. This was all one thought. Are you with me? And the next part of the thought, so so there is no chapter two here. You know, we read chapter two like, okay, it's another letter. It's like, no, no, this is the same letter. Look at the very next verse. So let's read it in context, so get a little run at it. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, here's the next, very next thought, right? It's not chapter two, it's the next thought. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you, what? May not sin. And if, everybody say if. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself was a perpetuation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. What's the point? He says if, not when, if you sin, you have an attorney. Now, I'll go on to tell you why in just a minute. But Jesus has done so much. When he died on the cross, he didn't just die to forgive your sins. He died to change your nature. So you are prone to righteousness, not prone to evil. You are so changed and so transformed. Not by what you did. Not what I did. I already tried that. That's 4,000 years of the Old Testament. I tried to be a good guy, and I couldn't. That's Romans, that's Romans 7. Paul said, I tried to do the right thing, but I couldn't do it. What's he talking about? He's not talking about his current state. If you read the context, he's talking about when I was a Pharisee, I knew all the rules, I knew all the laws, I, know this is, I knew to do this and not do that, but I had no power to change. So I already tried all that without Jesus. I know that doesn't work. But then he goes on to say, if you sin, you have an attorney. Why do you need an attorney? Listen, you don't need an attorney in the Old Testament. You know why? Because your nature was to do wrong that would be one busy courtroom but in the New Testament he's changed your nature so if you do something wrong if you sin you need an attorney now let's go on to chapter 3 and this is I took her my friend through this chapter listen to this verse uh, uh, we can just start verse it's all good verse 6 no one uh, we'll go back to verse 5 let's go back to verse 4 it's all good Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. Are you with me? You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. Why did He appear? Take away sins. In Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him... Verse 6. Come on, you can read. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is ra- righteous just as he is. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who's born of God what, practices sin because his seed abides in him in God, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. That's the same book that said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. What's he talking about? I start back here, and I'm, I need Jesus. I am a sinner. Well, I don't need God. If you say that, you're a liar. You're a liar. There's nobody. I don't care. You know, we all have people who don't know God that we admire. I do. I have people that don't know God. It's like, those people are amazing. They, they do nice things. They give money to people. They're great neighbors. They're great neighbors. You know, I have, people, I have people that I know that are neighbors of mine. I have a neighbor right next door to me who behaves better than lots of Christians I know. And he doesn't know God. But you know what? If he says he has no sin, he's a liar. He still is prone. He's prone to evil. He's prone to it. It's his nature. Are you following me? So back here, if I say I don't, I don't, I, I don't, need, I don't sin, I'm a liar. But when I come into the light, when I receive Jesus Christ, when I'm born again, when I become a new creation, whatever words you want to put to that experience that someone explained today that so many kids were led to Christ. When I receive Jesus Christ into my life, I'm not just forgiven. Just thank God. Thank God you're not just forgiven because that just erases the, the slate for you to start over. Right. Screwing up. Yeah, that's good. I'm not just forgiven. I am changed. I am changed, and now it is not my nature to sin. Now, does that, is John saying, listen, if you sin, you're of the devil. No, he's saying, if you practice sin. If you practice sin, you know, practice means you get good at it. If you practice sin, you have the wrong spirit working in you. It's important for us to realize this, that Adam didn't just do what God told him not to do. Sometimes we're like, I hear people preach this too. When Adam disobeyed God, he he sinned and, and and the devil took the world over. And that's not what happened. That's not what happened. See, God said, Don't eat the tree. The devil said, Eat the tree. See, if the devil wasn't in the garden, and Adam and God said, Don't eat the tree, and he would have eaten the tree, he would have sinned. But that is not what happened. Adam didn't just sin, he changed God's. God said, Don't eat the tree. The devil said, Eat the tree. If the devil wasn't in the picture and God said, Don't eat the tree, and Adam would have not, and Adam wouldn't have ate the tree, Adam would have sinned. That would have been a whole different situation. Do you understand that? And then there would have been forgiveness needed and all that. But that's not what happened. God said, don't eat the tree. The devil said, eat the tree. And not only did he do what God said don't do, that was only half the issue. The bigger part of the issue is, he did what the devil said to do. In other words, he became obedient to a different spirit. He didn't become obedient to his spirit. Listen, you don't need the devil to do something wrong. Let's just be really clear. Like, you have a will. The devil gets way too much credit for evil. You have a will. And I'm saying, and people who don't know God have a will. You have a will. And you don't need the devil around to make a bad choice. You have a will. So you you can sin without the devil. It's like, the devil made me do it. Well, he isn't that big. He's not that big power. He's not that powerful. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare in a minute. But I just want to draw a line here. Adam did not make a choice by himself to eat that tree. If he did, he would have only sinned, but he wouldn't have changed gods. Adam changed gods. Wow. Now, wh- the bigger struggle is this. Adam wasn't the janitor on the, of the planet. Right. It, it's a big difference between, let's say, Paul Goulet... Pastor Paul Goulet, he decides to. I hope this. I hope this works. I haven't thought through it. He decides to commit adultery. That isn't going to happen. God forbid. He's an amazing man. You know what I'm trying to say. There's a difference between he decides to commit adultery and the janitor decides to commit adultery. They're both wrong. They're both. They're both terrible. There's lots of destruction. But how many of you know if you strike down the shepherd, right. you scatter the sheep. Uh, I, I, I'm not trying to say that one person is more important in the eyes of God, but I am saying that when when Adam and Eve were created, God said, Be fruitful and multiply and take dominion. Right. So we're not talking about the gardener that, you know, we're not talking about that Adam was just cultivating the garden, you know, like we teach that like Adam was just the cultivator of the garden. No. Adam was the ruler of the world. Adam ruled the world. And when Adam changed leaders, the world changed leaders. Do you know why the devil became the ruler of the world? Because Adam was delegated as ruler of the world. And when Adam changed leaders, he came to work for the wrong company. That's why, see, Adam, Adam, the name Adam actually means man. You understand? It's absolutely, it doesn't just like, it's not the Greek word, it it is the word man. If you take out the word Adam, just put the word man in there. Adam was not his original name like, oh, that's Adam. His name, man. That's his name, man. So when Adam lost, when Adam changed gods, and because God gave the earth to man, and God doesn't lie. It had to take a man to get dominion back. Because it was man who got dominion from God. That's why God had to become a man to win dominion back. Because the earth was given to man. Are you with me? So Jesus, when he is led into the wilderness, it says that Jesus, it's interesting because in John, I'm sorry, In Luke chapter 3, Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. You remember this story. And a voice from heaven says, Come on, you know it. That's right. This is my beloved son who I'm... Well, please. Now, you remember, now we have a chapter break, which I am really, really sorry for chapter breaks. I really mean it. Whoever put in the chapter breaks, we know was not anointed. (laughs) They are put in the middle of conversations and they're terrible because, because if you're like me, I tend to read a chapter at a time or two or three and I tend to stop wherever the chapter stops instead of wherever the conversation stops. Which which What happens is is I actually don't grasp the climax of many of the conversations because they're in the next chapter. And then I pick it up the next day and I, and I forget. I lose the momentum of what's being said. So in chapter 3 of Luke... Jesus is being baptized and a voice from heaven says this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. The very next verse is very important and it's part of the context and the climax of what just happened. Now it says he's taken by the Spirit. It's a capital S Spirit. Now that's very important. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil, remember what's the first thing the devil says? Do anyone remember? If you are the Son of God, where did he get that from? The voice that had just spoken two hours earlier. Actually, if you want to be accurate, 40 days earlier, because he was in the wilderness for 40 days. But where did he know? How did he know that that was the Christ? Because he had heard the Father speak from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Now, he knows the Bible, but he doesn't know who the Christ is until God says, This is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. He gets, the Holy Spirit takes him in the wilderness. Now, this is important for you to realize. It's the Holy Spirit who takes you into the wilderness of your life. You go, am I being tempted by, is, is God trying to kill me or is it the devil? The answer to that is yes. See, they both want you in the wilderness, but there's two distinct and paradoxical purposes. God led you there to win. The devil brought you there to kill you. He brings them into the wilderness. And what's, the first, what's his first temptation? If you are the son of God, if you are, turn these stones into bread. How did the first Adam fall? He said, the first Adam fell. The devil said, can't you eat any of the trees of the garden? And Eve said, "Oh no, we can eat from any of the trees of the garden except for one tree. If we eat it or touch it, we'll die. And what's his, what did he say? No, no, you will not die. For God knows in the day you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Ah, uh, here's the problem. Remember Genesis 1 comes before Genesis 3, where the temptation is. Genesis 1 says, let us make man in our image. They were trying to get, The devil says, if you want to be like God, you need to do something. You need to eat the tree. Here's the struggle. They were already like God. They were trying to get through works what they already had through creation. And that's called a curse. Let me just say it one more time. Galatians 3 says that if you start by the Spirit and you try to perfect yourself through works, you're under a curse. In fact, he says you're bewitched. That means that you're under witchcraft. Instead of you try, Whenever you try to get righteous through your works instead of his, you have enter into witchcraft. Selah means think about it. I never could get that in Asia. I just came back from Singapore and I go, Selah. And they go, Selah. No, no, no. Selah means stop and think about it. All the way till the, I preached for five days. Every time I said "say la," they were "say la." I'm like, "No, no, don't say la." <laughs> Stop and think about it. So Jesus, what's the temptation? The first Adam. How does the first Adam fall? The the, the devil says, "If you if you want to be like God, then you need to do something. Eat the tree." He comes to the second Adam and he says, "Listen, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread." What's he doing? He's he's the same temptation the first Adam had the second Adam has. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of this temple. If you are the Son of God, and he goes on like that, and finally, what does Jesus do? He says, it's also written, you you shall not tempt the Lord your God be gone. What does Jesus say? (laughs) Listen, he refuses to perform, and then he goes, I am the Lord, your God, whom you, Are tempting. Get out of here. And then Luke makes this note. And Jesus departed in the power of the Spirit. He went into the wilderness led by the Spirit. He left in the power of the Spirit. See the goal of every wilderness is that you would whip the devil in the wilderness. And once you've whipped him in the wilderness, he'll run in the promised land. A lot of people trying to get into the promised land without processing through the wilderness. See, one of the struggles is is that we don't realize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6 was quoted first thing this morning. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We just need to stop and think about that. Because we teach all the time, I'm in a struggle with my old man. You are not in a struggle with your old man. The cross was not for the new the old the new man, but for the old man. The old man is dead. Forty-seven times in Romans 6, 7, and 8, it says, You were crucified with Christ. You're dead. You were crucified. You were baptized into his death. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. We are the grateful dead. (laughs) We're the original grateful dead. God is the ultimate body snatcher. He killed the man inside and moved in. You're not tr- Listen, God is not trying to modify you. He's trying to transform you. You are not in a battle with your old man. The old man is dead. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And mostly we think, well that means like that means that that I'm not, I'm not. Her and I, if we're having an argument, the real argument's not between us. That's true. The devil wants to stir up dissension between the brothers, but he also wants to. Dis, he wants to stir up more dissension between you and yourself. He's in a bigger war to get you in a war with yourself than he is to get you in a war with anyone else. Well, that's just a good word right there. Listen to this. In Ephesians. Chapter 1, in fact, what time is it? Oh, okay, we're doing okay. He said I have till 4 o'clock, so that gives me lots of time. Well, you don't have to preach about hell in here, do you? It's hot, as hell in here. (laughs) Ephesians chapter 1, we read these words. Verse 5. We've been... um, Verse 6, we've been raised up with Jesus and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ. So here we are in in chapter 2, we've been seated in heavenly places with Christ. In chapter 4, we're taught that we are to walk. We're to walk. Okay, so we're seated. Are you with me? There's nothing to sit on up here. We are seated. (laughs) This is how the Asians sit, anyway. We are seated. You ever try to use those toilets, man? I don't know how they How they do that, man? It's some sort of art. We're, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Chapter 4 says, "And we walk we walk according to the call, the No, start over. We walk according to the high call of God in Christ Jesus." So we have two stances in chapter 2, well, actually one and two. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, we walk according to the high call of Christ Jesus. And chapter 6, though, listen to this. In chapter 6, I love this, that this is in the same book. Verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. In the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle, everybody say struggle. Is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14. Stand firm, therefore. Are you with me? I love the seated seasons. Don't you? I love the seasons where I get to sit in heavenly places. How's it going, man? <laughs> life is good. Life is good. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're sitting in heavenly places, and, and you're just like, life is good. We're sitting with Christ. And we're talking about the future. Ha, I got money. I got favor. People love me. I love them. Jesus is awesome. I love those seasons. And then I love the other season. I like, walk in the high call of God, Christ Jesus. I love those seasons. I'm walk, What are you doing? I'm walking with God, man, in the cool of the day. I don't like these seasons. When you've done everything to stand, stand. <laughs> oh, saying? a second. I thought, I thought he put everything under my feet, dude. I'm going back to chapter two. That's what I'm doing. It says, he raised us up in heavenly places with Christ. He gave us a name above every name. And he he put everything, everything that ever be named under our feet. I like that verse. That's chapter 1 and 2. He put everything under our feet. Every name that's ever named. And then in chapter 6, he says, our struggle. And who are we struggling against? The same folks he put under our feet in chapter 1. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers, principalities and powers. For real forces of darkness. And he names five levels of of demonic oppression that's trying to war against me, making more ground. I got, wait a second, those people have names. They're principalities and powers. That's a name. And in chapter one, you said, you put them under my feet. In chapter six, you said, You struggle against them. The word struggle in some of your Bibles is wrestle. It means an intense wrestling for victory. And listen, if you'll notice chapter 6, you're not trying to gain land. He says, when you've done everything to stand, just stand firm. What are you trying to do? Keep what you won in chapter 1 through 5. You're just trying to not lose what you gained. Now, I want to make it clear if your whole life is chapter six, something's wrong. I'm not being rude. Something's wrong. Like you need to get help. Because your life is not supposed to be a struggle. Jesus said, I came to give you life and give it to you more abundantly. And he said, the kingdom of God is not eat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. So, so the normal Christian life, the normal Christian life is peace and joy. I just, I just want you to know, it's like, if you're spending your whole life in a struggle, anxiety, torment, fear, I'm like, okay, get some help. Find out what's going on. Find out what's wrong. But if you're going along sitting, walking, and you encounter a hailstorm, I'm like, that's called life. And before you ever get promoted, every time God leads you from Egypt, to the promised land. I love what Joseph Garlington said. He said, God closes one door and opens another, but it's hell in the hallway. (laughs) It's the wilderness that gives me. It's my wilderness that gives me the strength. See, between the promise and the palace is the process. It's the process that gives me the character to stay in the palace. If I figure out some way... See, it says, what does the Bible say? It says, there's no temptation except for common to all of us. So sometimes you think, I'm being tempted. It's like, oh my God, something's wrong with me. God says, no, no. Everyone, It's common to everybody. There's no temptation. except says, common to all men. And God gives you the strength that you might go through it. Go through it. I'm like, no, I want to go around it. I want to get around it. I don't want to go through the process. I and God is able to give you the strength to go around it. God goes, no, no, no. I am not the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm the light in the tunnel. I am with you. I am with you. When you pass through the water, I'll be with you. When you pass through the fire, I'll be with you. I'm not. When you pass through the water, I'll be waiting for you on the other side. If you drown, I'll take you to heaven. That's the way we read that. If you get burned up, don't worry. You know, I'll do the funeral. No. If you're in the fire, I am with you. If you're in the water, I am with you. You, Listen, there's nothing you can go through that I'm not with you. And there's nothing that you're going through that I authorized. Now, we'll talk about this in a minute. That I authorized that I didn't expect you to win. I don't lead you in the wilderness to be whipped by the devil. I brought you in the wilderness to whip the devil. I brought you in the wilderness. see, the devil lured you in the wilderness so that he could destroy you. But I let you be lured. It's my... See, (laughs) Graham Cook said this. If if the devil would have known what was going to happen at the cross, he would have killed everybody who was trying to put Jesus on the cross. In fact, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If the devil would have known what was going to happen after the crucifixion, there was going to be a resurrection, it was his absolute worst strategy to create a redeemer. If he would have known what was going to happen at the cross, he would have killed everyone who was trying to crucify him. His best chance would have been to leave Jesus alive. If the devil would have known what was going to happen when he led you into the wilderness, he would have killed everybody who lured you there. Because you never, God never allows you to be in a trial that doesn't give you authority to go to the next level. Never. 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 God never lets you into a wilderness that he doesn't expect you to believe in the power of the Spirit. The wilderness is there for promotion. It's not supposed to be 40 years. It's supposed to be 40 days. Now, how many of you know you can't shorten it? You can't shorten your wilderness experience, but you can make it longer. <laughs> I have a PhD in lengthening wilderness experiences. <laughs> how many of you have a PhD in lengthening the time that you've been in the wilderness? See, if you, read, if you read the book of, of, of Exodus, you realize that from, the, from, the, from Egypt to the promised land, with 1.5 million people traveling about a mile and a half a day, which would be about what it would take for 1.5 million people you know, to move little children, everything they brought with them, from Egypt to the promised land, to Canaan, is about 40 days journey. They made it 40 years. I know people that have turned a trial into a lifestyle. They made cross-carrying a career opportunity instead of a one-day journey. It's really important that we realize how warfare happens. Okay, here we go. This is going to get practical. Turn to uh, uh, Corinthians 2. Are you bored? Okay. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I think this is going to help a lot of you. Verse 3. Listen, we've we got to read this and understand what this is saying. For though we walk in the flesh, are you with me? We do not war according to the what? For, for the flesh. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not... "...of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses." Okay, you're reading a different... Okay, yeah. Verse 4, but I'm reading New American Standard, which is the right version. It's the way Jesus spoke. (laughs) (laughs) "...for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now look at verse 5. For we are destroying what? Speculations and lofty things and everything that's raised up against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Okay, listen. He calls fortresses, he says, listen, the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh. Say this, they're not, they're not of the flesh. Okay, do you know why they're not of the flesh? Because of Ephesians 6 says, we're not fighting the flesh. The point is, listen, if you don't get anything else, get this. You are not in a fight with your old man if you're a Christian. Your old man's dead. Now, if the, if the devil can convince you that you're fighting your old man, he doesn't need to bother you. Because you can spend your whole day chasing your butt. Okay, so he says, the weapons of a warfare are not of the flesh but they're divinely powerful to destroy, get this, and the actual, the actual Greek word I, I forget, but it means like it means like a fortification, like an evil castle. And then he names the, the building blocks of an evil castle. Thoughts, speculations, and lofty things. Is it possible that what is not tangible in this realm is tangible in another? Is it possible that a thought, which you can't see, I can't see it, Is it possible that a thought is actually tangible in the next realm? You realize that when God spoke words, they actually became worlds. Is it possible that what is not tangible in this realm is actually tangible in another realm? He says thoughts, speculations, and lofty things are fortresses, evil castles. Are you with me? Okay, let me read you something I wrote because I, I think it would be easier to read it to you than it is to uh, try to explain it. Spiritual conflicts often occur when we advance into new territory that is inhabited by evil spirits. Much like Joshua's promised land experience or Nehemiah's rebuilding of the walls, the enemy defends his territory when we're pushing forward into new land. Most Christians are completely unaware that these are real spirit wars, and they retreat at the first sign of conflict because they fail to recognize the true source of the battle. It's important to understand that evil spirits attack us by giving us thoughts, which the Bible calls flaming arrows, that are compelling. Think through what I'm saying right now. That are compelling. In other words, they make you feel like you want to do them. Then even though they're... I'm oh, sorry. I need to reread that. It's important to understand that evil spirits attack us by giving you thoughts, flaming arrows, that are compelling. In other words, they make you feel like you want to do them, even though they're opposite of your history and your nature. Then those same spirits accuse you of having those thoughts and feelings. If you believe these accusations, you lose confidence in yourself and God's ability to keep you, and you begin to wind down into depression, anxiety, and self-hatred. Listen to this. The war is finally won when you recognize that these thoughts are not yours and you resist them. As Paul said, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, or against rulers and powers, against world forces of darts and so on. In other words, because these thoughts are manifestations of evil spirits and not just bad ideas, when you decide to resist them, it becomes a struggle, an intense battle for land in the spirit. Most people retreat or digress to try to find peace or solace instead of press in and defeat the enemy and obtain their inheritance. Okay, let me explain what I just said to you. Does the devil know your thoughts? Not unless he gave them to you. See, 1 Corinthians Corinthians 2 says, nobody knows the thoughts of a man except for the spirit of man who's within him. Does the devil know your thoughts? No, he doesn't, unless he gives them to you. So how does spiritual warfare happen? Spiritual warfare happens by the devil giving you a thought. Now, not every thought you have, of course, obviously, is the devil, right? We know that. But when a thought is a spirit, are you with me? The word... Spirit is the word pneuma. It's the way, it's the same word breath. <sighs> when I speak, when I speak, air comes over my vocal cords and we call those words. With me? When the devil speaks, air comes over his vocal cords, we call that pneuma. Spirit. If the words that I'm thinking. In other words, if those thoughts that I'm having are actually the result of an attack by an evil spirit, am I making myself clear so far? I will, have a, I will be compelled or have an unction to do what it is I just thought. And then the devil accuses me of having the thought. Once I believe... Once I believe that I had that thought, in other words, when I believe I originated the thought, I become the enemy. And I create doctrine for it. I'm fighting my old man. Guess what? The devil doesn't need to stay with me anymore. In other words, okay, his attack, he's done attacking me now. You know why? Because I, I, will, I will attack myself. It's like having a spiritual autoimmune disease where the thing that's supposed to protect me is actually now attacking me. I end up with a spiritual autoimmune disease in which I wind down into destruction. Why? Because I failed to discern that that was not my thought because it was against my nature and it was opposed to my history. My history in God. Are you following me? For instance, let's say that I'm standing here and uh, a beautiful, you know, woman walks by, and she's half dressed, and I see her, and I, and I and then I have this thought: Well, I'd sure like to have sex with her. If I don't realize that that thought is not my nature, see, my nature, I am a child of God. I'm an heir. I'm actually an heir to the throne. My father is holy God. He's a holy God. And he said, be holy as I'm holy. It's my nature to be holy. I didn't make be holy. I just got born from a holy God. It's holy seed that born me. So I am, it's my nature to be holy. It's not my nature to be seductive. As soon as I, as soon as I go, as soon as I, as soon as I see that woman and the... And the thought comes, well, I should, you know, boy, I should like to have sex with her. Then the devil goes, Oh, and you call yourself a Christian. You call yourself a leader, do you? Boy, I wonder, I wonder what Pastor Bill would think if he just knew what you did to that woman. Yeah, and you know what Jesus said. You know what Jesus said? He said, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery. You might as well just go ahead and do it because you've already done it. Now, guess what? Once he puts that into play. It creates an ecosystem. An ecosystem supports itself. Now I'm stuck with the evil ecosystem. Why? Because I refuse, I didn't discern that the original thought was not from me. I just got stuck with an arrow. And what, what's supposed to protect me? A shield of what? Faith. A shield of faith says, I believe in the work God did in me. Ding! But instead I go, I believe I'm a sinner. Poof. I am not a sinner. I was a sinner saved by grace. But once I became, once I got saved by grace, I became a saint. And it's not my nature to think like that. Now, this is really important. And this is another conversation I had with our team the other day. A temptation is not sin. Jesus, Hebrews 4, was tempted in every way. But without sin. You're like, okay, I know that. No, okay, wait a second. What does it mean to be tempted? See, if someone puts sushi, let's say, let's say pastor said I could use his office and they laid out a beautiful plate of sushi. And I am really starving. Like I haven't eaten breakfast all day. Been fasting for 10 days. And they put that plate of sushi out and they're like, it's going to be for later. And a little, little, uh, little uh, sign says, please don't eat. I guarantee you, Not even a temptation. I don't care how hungry I am. I hate sushi. (laughs) I hate sushi. It's no temptation. You know why it's no temptation? Because I don't, see, in order to be tempted, I have to like it. Now, if I'm starving, and you put steak and lobster right right out of the oven, and it's and I haven't eaten in 10 days and I'm starving. You put steak and lobster up there. I'm tempted. Because I like steak and lobster. Okay, now follow me. I've still not sinned. Because I am because I am tempted. In other words, because I am drawn to eat that is not a sin. It's when I cross over and decide it's mine. That I should have it. Listen, I haven't touched it yet, but I should have that. That is mine. Are you with me? In other words, Jesus was tempted in every way. In every way is the key issue. In every way, except for without sin. See, it means that Jesus had to, had to like the thing that was, he was being. He had to like it. See, some people say, well, Jesus, um, uh, Jesus was a uh, eunuch. I, I don't believe Jesus was a eunuch because it says he was tempted in every way except without sin. If he was a eunuch, then he would have, you know, a uh, eunuch means that you, you no longer have a, a, I'm just trying to, I'm not trying to be crude. You don't, you don't have a desire for the act of marriage. That's, it's taken away through you being a eunuch. Well, Jesus wouldn't have been tempted in every way if he was a eunuch. It's not a temptation. See, I was pro, I was born to procreate. I was, I was born to procreate. That's not I, God made that. I didn't. I, God gave me a sex drive. I didn't give me a sex drive. God gave me a sex drive. I can't apologize for it because I didn't I didn't create it. So when I see a woman, I don't need the devil to go. Oh, she's beautiful, and I don't. And I can hear, you need to have sex with her from the devil. I still have not sinned. I have not sinned. Now, when I began to entertain the thought and start to decide, now, I haven't touched her yet. I haven't touched her. I haven't said anything. I haven't acted inappropriate. What have I done in my mind, though? I've said, she's mine. When I cross over that line in my mind, now I have sinned. I have sinned because I have decided that I deserve her, that I should have her. Are you with me? First thing we have to realize is temptation is not sin. You know, one of my, the, the lady who said, you know, I sin every day. When we started talking, she was talking about the fact that that she has she has a real struggle with patience. She said, I, I really, I really, I struggle with patience. And sometimes I, she goes, almost every day with my team, I'm just like, I'm struggling to just, I, and she said, she says, what happens if I just, if I, if I just yell at him and say, you know, burst out I said that's sin. But the fact that you struggle wanting to is not sin. It's called temptation. And the goal is that you manage your appetite, not get rid of it. Let me say it again. Let's talk about our sex drive. The goal of our sex drive is not to get rid of it. I don't care if I'm not married. If I'm if I'm 14, and I come into puberty, and I suddenly have a sex drive, it's not like I ran into the devil and he gave me this thing. No, God gave it to me. What's the goal? What's the, if I'm 14, what is my goal? Is my goal to get rid of my sex drive? No. My goal is to manage my appetite. And by the way, that young man, that young woman, they will have to manage their appetite once they have, once they get married, they will still have to manage it towards one person. Right? Right? It's not, it's, listen, temptation is not sin. Sin is when I ob- obtain the thing I'm being tempted with. Jesus was tempted in every way. But he didn't sin. You weren't born to sin. Listen, you know why this is important? Because we are battling We're in a spiritual battle. I don't want to say every day, because that's not true. It's not normal for you to be in a spiritual battle every day. But it is definitely normal when you start to move forward to take your inheritance, then you're going to have opposition. Most of the time we're like, I'm doing something wrong, I have all this warfare. So no, you're doing something right. The dogs of doom stand at the doors of your destiny. When you start to move into your destiny is when you get resistance. As long as you're doing like, you know, la, la, you know, kumbaya, Lord, we're all awesome. You know, let's do nothing together and get along. <laughs> you're not going to be opposed. It's so late, we don't have time to read the verses. But if you read chapter 4 of Nehemiah, in fact, you can put it up there. Chapter 4, 1 through, uh, probably 1 through 4 will be good. When Nehemiah starts to rebuild the walls, it says, When Sambalot heard... That we have come to restore the walls. Then he began to say, and if you read chapter 4 of Nehemiah, verses 1 through 4, you're going to hear exactly what you've been hearing in your mind. Can these feeble, what are these feeble Jews trying to do? He begins to attack your identity. You are a feeble Jew. No, I'm a son of God. No, you're a feeble Jew. And he begins to attack my identity. Can they restore it for themselves? He begins to attack my motive. Oh, it's all about you. You're trying to do this for yourself. It's selfish motive. Can they rebuild it in a day? He begins to attack my ability to perform. Are you with me? Can they, re- can they restore even the, the dusty ones? Ah, can they do the impossible? And he begins to attack me at the very core of who I am and what I'm called to do. When, when does he do that? Did he do it while I'm sipping suds with the king? Nehemiah the cupbearer to the king. Did Nehemiah hear from Sam Bellet, and Tobiah? By the way, Tobiah means good for nothing. <laughs> did, 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 did Nehemiah encounter an attack when he was sipping suds with the king in the, in the palace? No. It's when he got out of the palace and started the process of his destiny that he encounters the devil. Some of you are going through, you're going through huge warfare and you're like, Something's wrong in my life. I'd like to say, no, there's probably something right. You probably stopped sipping suds and decided to obtain your destiny. When we go from this place, I'm tired of making a living, and I want to make a difference. The devil goes, "Uh uh-oh, troops over here. We better get some troops over here. This guy is, uh, listen, Romans 8. The whole earth is groaning for the sons of God to be, the glorious sons of God to be revealed. Hey, over here, this guy thinks he's the glorious son of God. We better get him stopped. He could change the world. Remember what happened? We let those 12 guys do it. It says those who turned the world upside down have come here. We got another situation over here. Got a situation over here in Las Vegas. Got a whole bunch of people over here who think they're glorious sons of God. We better get them stopped. Never know what they can do when they figure out who they are. And all of a sudden, man, the Indians start shooting arrows at us. I'm not talking about the Native Americans. I'm talking about the native demonic spirits. And if we're not careful, we're like, we're grabbing a hold of them when they fall to the ground. We're like, mm, I deserve that one, and I deserve that one. That's me. And we come to church and people teach us that stuff. Man, you're just a dirty, rotten sinner saved by grace. Yeah. Mm. And I'm like, no, it's the breastplate of righteousness that protects me. I am right with God. Protects my heart. The, it was the helmet of salvation on my head. It changes my thoughts. I got a brain transplant when I received Jesus. I have the mind of Christ. I think like God. I know that thought can't be from, I know that can't be my thought because I think like God. Ephesians 5, I've been called to imitate God. I'm an imitator of God. What are you trying to be like God? Yep. So I was called to be like God, Christ. I was called a Christian, a little Christ. I'm a little chip off the block, that's what I am. I'm a little chip off the block. I'm almost done. I have a friend of mine. I, went, I have a friend. I have a friend in Jesus. Can you rap that, brother? Where'd you go? I bet you can. I have a friend who is going through a real struggle. He's a, he's a multi-multi-millionaire, owns a trucking company. And him and his wife were not getting along and he was having a struggle with one of his kids and his trucking company was going through a real serious time when they hadn't made money for quite a while. And And he was just, he just got depressed. He just got depressed. And he's, you know, he's rich, so he can afford the best counselor in the world. He flies halfway across this, the United States to meet with this Very expensive. This was years ago, like three hundred dollars an hour. Psychologist, psychiatrist, famous guy. Comes in and sits down. Never met the man before. Man sits down with him. My friend, I'll I'll call him John. His name isn't John. Says, "So, John, uh, what's going on? What's the problem?" He Said, "Man, you know, my wife and I aren't getting along. My oldest son having a struggle with business is losing money, and I'm depressed." I just, you know, I'm just, I'm just discouraged. I'm depressed. And now, he's that, he, was, he said, I, I sat there for about, he said, I was in the office not more than five minutes. And the counselor said th- these words. It was a passing thought. They hadn't done any counseling yet. But as my friend's telling the story, the counselor said, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is an inside job. My friend got up. Laid three $100 bills on the desk and started to walk out. The counselor followed him out the door until he got to the admin office and said, Sir, Mr. Smith, sir, did I say something to offend you? You've been here five minutes. He said, No, no, I got what I came for. He said, I don't understand. He said, I thought my problem was the circumstances, and you taught me that my problem was my stances, not my circumstances. I didn't know that I could choose joy in the middle of bad circumstances. And he walked out. The kingdom of God is not eat or drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. The greatest weapon, of warfare that you have against the thoughts is to not choose them. <laughs> I love, I love what uh, Philippians one says: not being alarmed by your opponent. It's a sign of destruction for him and salvation for you. Is it right if I finish with a story? Oh, please. I was going through terrible warfare. This is probably. 20, it would have been about 20 years ago. I mean, intense thoughts. I was having thoughts where I'd wake up in the middle of the night in a panic. Anyone ever had that before? Panic, I mean panic. I was having dreams that were so horrible and so demonic and so degrading. And they would be the kind of dream, have you ever had a dream that just stays with you for days? I mean, I would just stay with me for days and I would just grieve over it. And this went on for just, this went on for like three weeks. And I started, would w- I would wake up in the middle of the night. Now, some of this is too heavy for some of you, and I'm sorry, but this really happened. And I feel like I'm supposed to share the story. I try to be careful where I share it. Well, I feel like I'm supposed to do this here. But I wake up in the middle of the night from those dreams about, for about two weeks. Uh, like, I had them for about three weeks. So the last two weeks. And there would be two red eyes about uh, twice that size at the edge of my bed, watching me. Glowing eyes. I saw them with my eyes. This is not a vision. I saw them with my eyes. And then they'd just be glowing there. And I would say, you know, I'd say, I'd get up, and of course I'd be shaking, cold sweat, you know, because you had a horrible dream on top of it. And I'd wake up, and I'd say, in the name of Jesus, I rebuke you. And those eyes would just sit there and stare at me. They might, they might stay there for 20 minutes, just like taunting me, like you have no power over me. And that went on for weeks, two more weeks. I would get up and read the Bible to it. I'd put on worship music before I went to bed. I mean, everything I learned about warfare. i I put on, you know, uh, worship music, you know, uh, Psalms 149, the high praises of God in our mouth and a two-edged sword in our hand. We'll smite nations with vengeance. And, I mean, I I I did everything I knew to do. I would read the Bible before I'd go to bed. I would journal. I'd meditate on on the on the good stuff before I go to bed, and still those eyes persisted. Torment persisted, and so one day, man, I was exhausted. You know, and you go through weeks of that. You're just I'm just physically, emotionally, and mentally exhausted. And right before I go to bed one night. The Lord says, hey, you want a strategy? I'm a, I've been waiting three weeks. I'll take even a bad idea right now, if you know what I'm saying. He said, I want you to try the power of ignore. The power of ignore. I'll say, all right, what's that mean? And he gives me Philippians 1. You're not alarmed by your opponent. It's a sign of destruction for him and salvation for you. That night, I had the same horrible dream. Two eyes hovering about seven feet in the air right above at the edge of my bed, right at the foot of my bed. I get up, of course my heart is pounding out of my chest like it always is. You know, I'm going to die, I'm having a panic attack, sweats pouring down my head. And I, I get up, I look up and I see this thing, it's been two weeks of this. And I go, oh, it's just you. I turned over and put my head back on the pillow. My heart still pounding. Closed my eyes and pretended to sleep. It left. Never to return. I figured out something that night. The devil loves attention. (laughs) And sometimes... The greatest spiritual warfare in the world is to pay attention to Jesus. Sometimes singing songs about spiritual warfare is exactly what the devil likes. He likes us to do whatever we have to do to make him look big and God look small. To make him the center of attention and take our eyes off of God. And I'm convinced that the greatest spiritual warfare is around who gets worshipped, or let me just put it simply, who is at the center of our lives and our minds. And I think some of the best things we can do in life, some of the great, and I understand this, you know, I've spoke six weeks on warfare in our church, so you're getting just a little piece. You're getting an hour and ten minutes of it. But I think one of the greatest weapons of warfare is ignore. I think one of the best things in the world you can do when you have a bad thought is ignore it. I I even think that sometimes just going, I'll rebuke you, get off of me, I'm stronger than this. I sometimes think that's a mistake. I think that just gives him way too much attention. I think sometimes the best thing you do is go, it's just you. It's definitely not me. Just you. Let me me just make sure this part is clear. It's definitely not me. Because I don't think like that. That is not my nature. I have no desire to do that with that woman. I have no desire to do that to that person. I have no desire to commit that crime. I have no desire. That's not my nature. I'm sorry. It ain't me. Oh, it's just you. I love these words, and I'll finish with them. If, uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. When it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom, and the Arabs, and to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the walls, and no breach remained in it, although at the time I had not set up the doors of the gates, then Sanballat the Gershom sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet in Cherm, in, Cher- in the valley of Ono. You don't want to go and meet with the enemy in the valley of Ono. <laughs> Never talk to the devil without your attorney present. But they were planning to harm me, so I sent messengers to them. I love this. Listen to this. I'm doing a great work for God, and I can't come down to you. Why should the work stop while I leave to come down to you? Listen to this. For they were all trying to frighten us, thinking they will, come, they will become discouraged with the work, and it will not be got done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, the son of Sabbat, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? Should someone such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then, everybody say then. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent them. Then, when, when? When I decided to not pay attention to them. Then I perceived that God had surely not sent them. But he uttered his prophecy because, because against me because of Sam Bellat and Tobiah had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened. Everybody say frightened. And act accordingly and sin so that they may have an evil report. And reproach me. Remember, O oh God, T- S- Tobiah and Sambel, according to these works of theirs. And also Notodiah, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Everybody say, frighten me. Christ. So the wall was completed in the, 50, in the 25th month of Elu, in 52 days. And then it goes on to say, and our enemies were discouraged. Stand up, please. How many of you feel like you've been under attack, assault, especially in the mind, which is where most of assaults come? Would you raise your hand? Don't be, it just, you're, in that, you're in that season. You're in that stand firm season, and it, you just feel like, sometimes you feel like you're going crazy. It's so intense. How many of you have that going on right now? I'm going to pray for you right now, and that season's going to end right now. I just finished one of those seasons recently, and i tell you, I feel like once you come out of it, you have authority to stop it for others. So I'll just pray right now, in Jesus' name, that this storm over your life would stop. That these demonic spirits would leave your mind, that they would leave your life, that they would not be able to attack your heart. And Lord, I pray that you would fortify, that you would fortify the words that you have given to these saints. As you said to Timothy, take the prophetic declarations that have been made over you and with them fight the good fight that you would arm them, that they would become Holy Spirit terrorists against the powers of darkness. Lord, I just pray right now that you would just show them the deceptive nature of these words, that these words are not from you, they're not from themselves, but we have an enemy. And Lord, I pray right now that that the winter would pass and that the spring would come. I just release that over them right now in Jesus name. I also have a word for this church. I feel like if